This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything Richard Dean and myself have been up to on Friday, November the 18th, other than driving the producers absolutely potty. We're back from Abu Dhabi. We're back in the actual studio. Well, we are. That Tom Urquhart seems to be back down at the golf. So what have we been doing this morning? Well, we have been watching to make sure that he's actually doing some work, Tom Urquhart, which... He has been, to be fair. He has been in conversation with many executives involved with the tournament, including Emirates Group Executive Boutros Boutros. We, meanwhile, doing the proper hard grown-up work, have been having a look at the autumn statement, otherwise known as budget, coming out of the UK, discussing it with Katija Hack, Chief Economist of Emirates NBD. We've also been looking, or at least Richard has, at the kerfuffle around Taylor Swift tickets and what they say about the way that entertainment events are sold. But the big talker this morning has been car insurance. That's because the CEO of Policy Bazaar UAE, Nuraj Gupta, has told us that policies are rising and will continue too. There was a COVID discount for car insurance and there's been quite the discussion about who has seen one. So major breaking economic stories in Europe, but never mind that. I'm looking at the economics of music. And snakes and stones never broke my bones, so... That is Taylor Swift. And the reason we're talking about Taylor Swift is this headline. Taylor Swift public ticket sale cancelled amid high demand. Have you seen this story, Brandy Scott? Taylor Swift announced a tour this week. The fans have made sure that everybody has heard of this. (sighs) She is arguably the biggest star in music at the moment, along with Drake. I don't know. They're Coke and Pepsi at the moment. Um, But tickets to see Taylor Swift live in concert sold so swiftly uh uh, that the general public never even had a chance to buy. Ticketmaster is the company selling seats to the singer's US tour. It has had to cancel the public sale. Taygate. It's being called by CNN, by the way. Is it really? Well, because there is a political angle to this, isn't there? Ticketmaster is citing extraordinarily high demand on ticketing systems and insufficient remaining ticket inventory. It's already sold over 2 million tickets in pre-sales for select groups. But the company, Ticketmaster, has come under criticism after the website crashed you've got well okay so you've got fans and parents of you've fans. got swifties actually <laughs> to give them their correct name nancy abulmagd is one of them saying i got so close three or four times and then the website broke it was agonizing people spending hours queuing in virtual queues to get tickets for this thing you've got people saying the experience was really deflating it messes with your emotions and sucks up your whole day Fine. Parents want to get them for the kids. People just want to get them for themselves. But there's also the political uh, angle as well, because you've got uh, a a lot of people saying that the the root cause of this problem was a merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation about 12 years ago. And a, a lot of political commentators saying that's the reason. We created a monopoly, Ticketmaster Live Nation, where there was a duopoly, and, you know, mono- basic economics, monopolies, the argument goes, are never particularly efficient. They don't ask it, uh, act in the interest of consumers. And that's why we're allowed to 
have situations like this happening. What's your take? Uh, my take is, and it's very easy for me to say as someone who doesn't run a major ticketing website, that you probably could have seen this coming. So Ticketmaster saying that there was extraordinarily high demands. It's Taylor Swift. There was always going to be what mega th- demand. I mean, what you, who did you think was going to come? Six people and their grandmas? Yeah. Like, it was always going to be massive. She's got a new... Mind you, she's prolific. She's always got a new album out. But Midnight's has done extraordinarily well. Everyone is wildly excited about it. Uh, there was always going to be unprecedented demand. This is her speaking, Taylor Swift. She's 32 years old. Uh, she's a musician. This is her speaking, launching the album that you mentioned three weeks ago on the uh, Jimmy Fallon show. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm 32, so, so we're considered geriatric pop stars. No, I don't think so. so. They, they start trying to put us out to pasture at age 25. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just happy to be here. No, 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 no. <laughs> so she's charismatic as well as being a good songwriter and a good musician. Uh, but yeah, as you say, Midnight's broke several records, one being that on Spotify, the day it launched, the top 10 most streamed songs on Spotify... We're all Taylor Swift. I mean, I'm not being funny, but could you not look at that as an organiser and say, hmm, she's got every single one of the top 10 slots? Something that... Has that happened only once before, am I thinking? Drake had nine of the top 10 for his album in 2021. So Drake's the other guy at the moment who's, you know, really, really, really popular. There are other people who are popular, but those two, I would say, are pop royalty at the moment, or music royalty at the moment. Yeah, he did nine out of the top 10, but he didn't do all 10 of the top 10. Do you not think people might want to see these performed live? (laughs) It's possible, isn't it? Anyway, Ticketmaster has uh, crashed. Um, So I was intrigued because I hadn't heard Taylor Swift's new album. Had had you heard Taylor Swift's new album? Uh, I've played it. There's one song um, with a chorus, It's Me. The problem is me. Yes. Um, that is my utter favourite from it, actually, for reasons I probably don't need to explain. Well, that song is Antihero. Taylor Swift says it is her most autobiographical record to date. Very self-reflective. Uh, the lead single from it is Antihero. If you want to know what all the fuss is about, it's this. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always I quite like her, but I haven't been. I do. The chorus, the chorus is good. Um, It's uh, yeah, I yeah, I'm I'm fond of it. She is brilliant. I mean, net worth. Did you Google her net worth? Uh, I have not. That would be your job. Have a guess. Nearest the pin. It is a precursor to the Serena Kelly quiz at nine o'clock. It's billions, isn't it? No. Uh, No. It's millions. How could it not be billions? Celebrity net worth, which is not a scientific barometer. They say four hundred and fifty million. Okay, well, thank you. But it's a lot. Let's talk about economics. Uh, Yeah, speaking of millions, um, we have the uh, hotly heralded autumn statement budget, really, uh, coming out from the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt in the UK. Um, It's quite extraordinary for a number of reasons. Um, It's quite extraordinary for the fact that it is the polar opposite of trussonomics which brought down the last Prime Minister in the UK. Um, It's quite extraordinary because it's a Tory uh, government and this looks an awful lot like a Labour budget. Um, And it's quite extraordinary for what people are forecasting it will do to the UK UK economy um, before it writes it. So the medicine is going to be 
a bit hard to swallow um, before it starts having an effect. So basically, tax rises and spending cuts. It's an austerity budget, is what I'm reading. It, it is indeed. Um, massive um, uh, sort of uh, kicks on the tax, particularly for those um, up at the higher end of the scale, which is not a very Tory thing to do. Um, this could no better be explained than by looking at the Daily Mail this morning. Um, <laughs> he is no longer dishy rishy. He is now fishy rishy. <laughs> Crikey. And high tax hunt. And the party have been named by one of the columnists, the Tinos, Tories in name only. I tell you what's extraordinary about this is, for, for me, is how you could have one of the world's major, most developed economies, fifth biggest, depending on which, which, which ranking you look at, or sixth, to have the same political party and to have one group of people two months ago who came in, tax cuts... Trickle down economics. We're going to stimulate growth. We're going to cut taxes, boost spending, boost the economy. And then the same political party comes in a few weeks later and says, no, 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 no. We're going to raise taxes. We're going to have an austerity budget. Mm-hmm. And we're going to cut public spending. It's, it's bizarre. Um, it is. Are they the... <laughs> The question is, will it go far enough and will it go or will it go too far? Will it do what it is intended to do, which is to um, chip away at the UK debt pile over the next five years, um, bring down inflation and ultimately get the economy on course? This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we are talking motor insurance this morning, which is on the rise, according to the guys at Policy Bazaar. Very pleased to be speaking. Speaking this morning to the CEO, Naraj Gupta. Naraj, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. So what's happening? Why is the cost of motor insurance rising? So motor insurance, if you see the, uh, during the COVID period, what exactly happened is because the claims were not happening, people weren't driving. Uh, authority said, okay, you could give an extra discount. So 50% COVID discount kicked in. But that did not move away. But the cars came back on the road. The uh, claims went up, the frequency went up, and the cost of repairs have gone up. So what is happening is the regulator and the insurance companies have been speaking to each other. And what it is coming about is this needs to get corrected and go back to the pre-COVID levels, at least that discount piece, because that, what that factored in is people were not driving and accidents were not happening, but the case has been reversed. Okay, so let's dig into what's actually happening with discounting. What did the insurance authority sign off for COVID and what kind of discounts would we normally have seen? So what was happening is during the COVID, the authorities said you could give a 50% discount on the premiums uh, to consumers who are in the so-called uh, the associated industry with covert doctors, nurses, frontline workers, right? But eventually what happened is that proclocated to everybody, right? So the premiums really dropped. Uh, now what has happened is over the last couple of weeks, uh, the discussions have started with the regulators and regulators have really pointed out that this is not looking sustainable because claims are back to pre-COVID levels, whereas the premiums are almost 50% down. So how do you account for that? That is where industry's taken a cue and they've decided to raise the rates. So some have already done that. Okay, they've taken a cue, but they haven't been told you can't offer these 50% discounts. Not really. They've not. So the uh, regulator has not instructing you can't offer this anymore. Uh, that's not happened, yes. The, the 50% discount might come as a bit of a surprise to to people um, hmm. who think, hang on, no one's, no one's been offering me a 
50% discount on my motor insurance. So what was happening is when we were going to an insurer uh, earlier and taking a quote, it was already factored in. It was not being called out as a discount per se. But what we've seen is the average ticket size of a premium have gone down uh, because those discounts got built in. So it's not that you will go and ask for, can you give me the score discount? People had already built in that. Were people being offered half price motor insurance though during COVID? So I would say about 30 to 50% cheaper, uh, not exactly 50% because there's a multiple factors on it, depending how many claims you have and everything, uh, but essentially 30 to 50% cheaper. So just to give you a perspective, uh, motor insurance for a saloon, which would cost you about 1200 dirhams was almost offered at about 700 to 800 dirhams. Uh, so that that's where the variation was. What does the law say? What does the insurance authority say about the discounts that can be offered anyway, particularly for no claims? So what has happened is for the first year, like 10%, second year, 20%, third year, 30%. Uh, now what has happened is it's went up to, okay, three years, we'll give you 50%, 60%, 50%, 60%, not 60%. Uh, what has happened is that factored in all the COVID discounts, the new claim bonuses, and bundled it up to reflect a lot more. Uh should we all be negotiating a little bit harder? Yes, definitely yes, you should be. Because I'm looking at my own premiums and I've dug them out. Um, and yes, my, the difference in my premium between 2018 and 2022 um, is 30%. Hmm. Um, however, my car is also worth about 28% less. Yes. So I wouldn't call that a discount. I'd call that depreciation. So what will happen is also you have a basic level of premium, right? That the price can't go below this premium. That is as per the regulator, right? So if you fall into that, so whatever your car prices drops, your premiums are not going to drop in that way. Okay. But so, yes, you should definitely negotiate. I think I should. So talk to me about how this is going to work, rising uh, motor insurance costs at a time when people are very concerned about the rising cost of living. So what is happening is the industry is definitely suffering losses because of huge claims and the cost of repairs have gone up. Uh, what the industry is doing is just uh, uh, balancing that out. Uh, and I believe what are you going to see is the, the insurance rates are definitely going to rise. Uh, but what is also going to happen is you might get a lot better production services out of it. How much could they rise by? Give me a, a percentage. Uh, I believe it should ride anywhere between a 20 to 40 percent. Could this affect the type of cars that people buy? Definitely, yes. Definitely, yes. Uh, see, obviously, the higher uh, the rated car would be or the prone to accidents are, that is going to see a significantly higher increase. What do you mean prone to accidents? Uh, okay, so there's a class of cars, right? So sports car or people, young drivers, the way they would drive, as per the data it suggests, they might be prone to more accident. It's not the car per se, but obviously the person driving it. So what effect do you think, um, as someone in, in the industry, higher motor insurance will have on what we buy? What do you expect to see happen next? So what we expect is people to shop around a lot more. Earlier, what they would do is just renew or just get a renewal quote and be around and continue with that. But what I expect is people now to go into the market shop around a lot more. They would want to compare, as you rightly said, the cost of livings are going up. So every increase on their uh, expense, they want to obviously have a li little mellow it down, right? So they will shop around for sure. What are you seeing in terms of the number of policies that are being issued at the moment? So I, uh, the, they have gone up, definitely. So we are seeing a healthy growth happening month on month on motor insurance uh, uh, in spite of the increase happening, yes.
Could you put a number on that for me, a percentage? So, for example, on month on month, month we are increasing anywhere between 25 to 35 percent uh, in the last quarter at least. That is what the numbers are. Uh, how does that look uh, in the next quarter? Let's look at that. What do you think that 25 to 30 percent increase on the number of motor insurance uh, policies being written is down to? What does that tell us about what's happening? So, two things are happening. I believe people are back in Dubai. Uh, the roads are crowded, so more and more people are coming in. They are making this as their residence. Uh, which we are also seeing on the car sales side, right? If you look at the second-hand car market, that has really blown up. Uh, from a perspective, more more players have come in, and obviously it's heated up because the opportunity exists. Yes. Do you know which of those policies are brand new policies, suggesting new residents, and which are renewals? Uh, so for us as a platform, we typically offer consumers on the renewal side, and if you look at it, the second-hand car sales have definitely gone up. And consumers are now obviously preferring a lot more second-hand cars, like one, two years old car. Uh, and obviously on the new cars, there was a supply constraint, right? So, I've got 30 seconds left with you. I'm still fascinated by that sort of 25-plus percent tick-up. Do you feel that that reflects what's happening to the population? Uh, not necessarily only to the population, but if you look at what is happening to the macroeconomics, is everything from uh, cost of repair to labor cost to the spare parts have gone up. And the premiums have worked in, in the inverse direction. That needs to correct, right? That's just a mathematical uh, question about it, right? So I mean, that's in terms correct. of the numbers of premiums. Number of premiums, yes. So number of premiums, what we were saying is we were speaking to a couple of insurers. So they've seen, for example, 20% jump in volumes, but only about single-digit growth in premium, which essentially meant that you were doing 15-20% more business just to maintain the premium levels as our total company, right? So that needs to get corrected somewhere. Niraj Gupta is the CEO at Policy Bazaar. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Get some more detail on those big economic stories now. Katija Hack is Chief Economist of Emirates MBD, joins us live in the studio. Morning, Katija. Good morning, Richard. Can we start with the United Kingdom? Still the world's fifth or sixth biggest economy, depending on which report you read, and what looked like an austerity budget yesterday. Major tra- trading partner with the UAE. What were your key takeaways? So I think the first thing to note is that it was in line with what had been indicated in the weeks in the run-up to the announcement. So there was a £55 billion budget gap over the next sort of three, four, five years which needed to be plugged, and this package did do that. So they increased taxes, they've cut spending, um, and they've managed to find that £55 billion, which means that markets were appeased, uh, I guess is a, probably a good a good word to use. Um, we didn't see a big run up in bond yields. Uh, there was a slight increase in guilt yields. We saw a little bit of weakening on the pound. But overall, um, it seems to have reassured markets that there is a, a safe pair of hands, I guess, at the uh, Treasury or the, you know, in, in the chancellorship in the UK. Um, but of course, it does mean that it's going to be more and more difficult for consumers and to some extent businesses in the UK as well. Um, the economic outlook was not great. So there is a projection for a recession next year, um, GDP declining by 1.4% in 2023, and then recovering only 1.3% the following year, and then hopefully picking up speed after that. But I think it is safe to say it's going to be a challenging couple of years uh, for UK households and businesses. Give us a bit of context, if you can, about what it means for us here in the UAE, what it means for your clients at, at the biggest bank in Dubai here in the UAE. Because we always ask ourselves the so what question. 
If something happens in the United States, well, what, why do we care? What does it mean for us? Or something happens in China or India or the UK. Yeah, they're major economies. But to what extent are people here in the UAE, business people, you, you know, your clients, the people you work with, concerned about the UK economy? Well, I think the UK is just one of a number of um, issues that are going on in global uh, economies, which will affect the UAE next year because we are a small open economy. A lot of our activity is driven by global trade, um, by tourism, and all of that depends on the health of, to a large extent, the rest of the world. And so when you look at the UK in the context of other big developed economies and what's going on there, it's telling really not very good story about next year. So we, we're having slower than expected growth in China. We have a lot of restrictions still in place there, which means tourism is probably going to take some time to recover to pre-pandemic levels uh, from China. We have, uh, you know, an expected uh, recession in the United States next year. Um, and we have the UK and the Eurozone pretty much in recession right now. And so, you know, that means that global trade volumes will probably fall. Uh, next year. So for a transport hub and a logistics hub like the UAE, um, that's not going to be a a great environment to be operating in. It also means that the visitors that come from those places are going to be under pressure in terms of their budgets. So we may not get the kind of high spending uh, visitors that we've been used to over the last couple of years. We may see a bit of pressure on those industries in in our economy as well. So it's not just a, a UK specific story. I think it's indicative of of what's going on everywhere, um, and that next year is going to be quite a challenging environment for for our region. In in terms of economic policy, I know Brandy's studying economics at the moment. You're a chief economist. You're South African, but you've spent time in London, haven't you? Working there, quite, I have, yes. for, for investment banks. It strikes me that this is one of the most extraordinary moments in economic policy. You've got a major developed economy like the UK. The same party is is in power. And yet you've had this phenomenal U-turn in economic policy in just a few weeks. Two months ago, we had Liz Truss as prime minister and the policy was cut taxes, stimulate growth, stimulate the economy. The markets didn't like it. She was out. Now we've got a new prime minister in charge, Rishi Sunak, who is raising taxes and cutting spending to to take the, the accelerator off growth. I can't remember that ever happening again in term, before in economics. What about you? It is an extremely challenging situation. Um, and I think the biggest issue really facing not just the UK, but other big economies is inflation. So in the past, I mean, we haven't had inflation at 11%, which is what it is in the UK at the moment, for over 40 years. And so all the models that you would normally use um, to try and set policy and all of the assumptions that you would normally put into those models, they don't really work anymore because we're in this environment where inflation has to come down. And the only way you can do that is by slowing growth. Um, and raising interest rates to to do that. So what what the trust government had had sort of done, which caused all of the distress in financial markets in the UK, was she'd basically come out with a very expansionary fiscal policy in the sense she was going to be cutting taxes. And that meant that, you know, people had more money to spend and so demand would be quite strong and inflation would actually be quite a lot higher than might otherwise have been the case. So she was doing, she was working at odds Uh, to the Bank of England. And that was the problem. So the Bank of England had to, you know, then grapple with, you know, surging guilty yields and 
crises in the financial markets. Um, what this government has done is saying, you know, we will work with the Bank of England. We know that inflation is the big issue that we've got to uh, face. We cannot be cutting taxes and uh, increasing spending at a time when we've got to try and bring down aggregate demand. Um, and then obviously there's a whole lot of other issues. There's households, you know, facing pressures from higher energy costs and food costs. And so he's tried to, the Chancellor has tried to provide some relief for the very lowest income households, um, but someone's got to pay for that. And I think the difference between the Trust Administration is that she wanted to provide that relief, but nobody was going to pay for it. It was going to be, you know, borrowed. And so that meant interest rates would have to go quite a lot higher. Um, so hopefully under this plan, we won't see interest rates needing to rise quite as much as might have been the case under the previous uh, fiscal plans. Oh, sorry, Brandy Scott, let me turn your microphone up. What's it going to feel like on the ground, though? I mean, the OBR has basically said you're going to have the worst fall in living standards in the UK since they started keeping records. Yeah. It's not going to feel comfortable at all. Um, so anybody who's who's earning you know a reasonable amount of money is going to be paying a lot more tax. Um, if you are just um, getting a normal pay rise every year, you're going to probably fall into a higher tax bracket. So actually quite a lot of the tax increases have come through what's called fiscal drag, which is effectively pulling people into higher tax brackets that might not otherwise have been there because you haven't increased the limits at which those those tax rates kick in. And they've done the same for national insurance and they've done the same for companies that need to register for VAT. So if you're in a, a world where the average price level is going up by 10% a year, but you don't increase the limits at which those higher taxes kick in, you're going to have more and more people having to pay more and more tax. So it's not going to feel um, at all comfortable, not for households, not for businesses. And it's a little bit of a challenge for a conservative government in particular, because they're all about smaller government and, you know, allowing the free market to do its thing, allowing uh, entrepreneurs and innovators to come and, and, and do their thing and, and grow the economy and improve things for everybody. But in this, in this you know, short term, the next sort of three, four, five years, um, the kinds of policies they've put in place are actually going to discourage that kind of uh, investment, I think. The only one extra point I want to make is um, a lot of the tax increases that they have announced are only actually going to kick in after 2024. And there's an election in 2024. So it's actually quite possible that some of what they've announced may not actually come to pass. They may be able to undo it or reverse it or change it before they go back um, to the electorate in 2024. Let's talk very quickly about house prices. Um, it feels... Uh it doesn't feel like the nicest thing to do to talk about potential silver linings um, for investors. But the other thing that the OBR has forecast is that UK house prices, they say, will fall until 2024. Here is, let me just grab their numbers. So they're saying between the last quarter, so effectively now, of 2022 and the third quarter of 2024, we could see UK house prices down by an average of 9%. A lot of people will see that as an opportunity. Um, well, it depends um, on with how... mortgage rate rises more, to go with that, by the way. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, even if the price of a house falls, if you're having to pay two or three times more on interest, your mortgage payment may still not allow you to buy that cheaper house. You may not be able to afford that higher mortgage payment. Um, but I do think, you know, we have had a very strong uh, increase in house prices, not just in the UK, but around the world since the pandemic, because there have 
there has been so much liquidity, interest rates have been so low, people have had money from uh, COVID relief schemes, um, you know, they've had uh, not been able to spend that in the normal way by traveling. And so they've been able to go out and, and buy property and, you know, increase their living spaces and things. So I do think, um, you know, some correction is warranted and we are seeing it uh, you know, in, in a lot of developed economies, we're seeing the housing market in the US come off the boil very, very quickly. We had a drop of around 4% in new housing starts in the US uh, last month. Um, and sentiment uh, at home builders is, you know, at the lows that it was at during the start of the pandemic. So Katija, we're out of time. We're going to have to leave it there, which is a shame. Riaz has written in with a great question. Why is the pound stronger than the euro? It's a good question, Riaz, but it's probably a debate for another day. Katija Hack, Chief Economist ever at MVD. Appreciate your time this morning. You're very welcome. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Uh, right now, what's happening? It is such a busy time in Dubai. There's business events happening, but there is also an awful a lot of sport happening here in the UAE. Tom Urker is live at Jamiroa Golf Estates from where he joins us live. Morning, Thomas. Good morning to you, Richard and Brandy. Uh, and a big thank you for joining us down here live uh, from the Jamiroa Golf Estates, from the DP World Tour Championship season finale. Uh, and what a finale it is lining up to be. Matt Smith, Patrick uh, and Tyrrell Hatton both sharing the lead overnight going into day two. They will be the final pairing today around about 12.45 this afternoon. Um, spectacular start to proceedings down here at the Jumeirah Gulf States. Yesterday, just had to cast your eyes to the sky and see that extraordinary fly past. Now, if that was an indication that we're back to business here in Dubai. I don't know what is. Best person to ask about that is, of course, my first guest this morning. Very special guest to the show. Uh, he is the Divisional Senior Vice President, Corporate Comms, at, of course, Emirates Group, uh, Boutros, Boutros, Boutros. Thanks so much indeed for joining us this morning. And thanks for, well, the, the entry yesterday as well. A very spectacular fly pass. Yeah, it, it was. It was very sensational. Uh, I believe it's the first and only golf tournament in the world who ever had this privilege to have the Red Arrows and an ACCAP. It was really uh, a, a long uh, preparation. It took us around four weeks, a uh, lot of coordination, more probably than 30 people, part of it, to see uh, the Dubai skyline. Uh, and it was it was, it was was present to Dubai, not only to, to the tournament, because they flew over all the beautiful places of Dubai and thousands of people had the chance to see it. So. Here we are, Dubai again, surprise the world. Surprise the world, but it also makes a little bit of a statement. And I wonder whether that is a statement, that Dubai is back. And Emirates, that you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, of course. Now we are back to into business, uh, Dubai back into business. And to be honest, it would have been back since like more than a year. The rest of the world wasn't back. So at least now we can say we are celebrating that the world is back. No more, hopefully, uh, pandemic, no more close down. And this is an indication, and you always have to remember that Emirates is a global airline, international airline, and so we as well reflect what the world is about. So to me, it's not only Dubai is back, it's about the global is back. Let's talk something very close to your heart, um, and that is, of course, all things sport. Here we are, driving range just behind us. We're waiting for the best of the world to head out onto course as well. A very diversified sports sponsorship portfolio that you and your team manage. Where's golf sit in that? Yeah, golf, uh, you, you know, we, we've been focused the last 30 years on the top six sports. And uh, golf had been there since the start of, I remember, 1989. The first Desert Classic was sponsored by Emirates. 
we've been associated with golf since then, and our portfolio has been growing and growing. Uh, today, we sponsor around 40 golf tournaments around the world. Uh, of course, DP World is uh, one of the flagships of it. Uh, this one is, again, one of the flagships. And uh, it's, it's a part of our uh, global strategy for positioning uh, Emirates Airline as a global brand, uh, raise awareness and uh, across uh, you know, millions of uh, golfers. It's interesting to me looking at seeing uh, boots on the ground, to seeing uh, the, the, the footfall uh, at events like this. You and I were both at the Emirates Airline Dubai uh, uh, Rugby Sevens long lunch not so long ago. I've never seen a busier room, certainly since pre-pandemic, that's for sure. Is it the same here? Are you seeing demand from uh, dedicated clients and customers to come to events like this? Yeah, especially over the weekend. I, I understood from the organizers that over the weekend is sold out. Uh, yesterday and today, I was surprised. Like our hospitality was like 50% more than we expected. Thanks God we had enough food so, <laughs> and drinks. Uh, and if you've seen people like following uh, following uh, the players, it's it's a fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, Dubai is great. It caters for everybody, and there is always something for somebody. And you say like the the rugby lunch, it's it's a long lunch. It's a preparation for the rugby seven uh, during the national day weekend. And again, it's going to be another spectacular event. And it's again, Dubai now you have full confidence that can deliver the event from roads, from hotels, from airlines, even for the golf tournament, I understood that 15,000 people flew into Dubai yeah. for this golf tournament. So to me, it's it's great for the business, great for the economy. You know, Dubai has, has been always wanted to be the sports capital of the Middle East. So we are now beyond this. Quick question about the sort of landscape of sports sponsorship at the moment, not your first radio, you've been uh, involved in it for, for, for many years. Um, obviously, COVID threw a spanner into the works of the world of aviation, but industry as a whole. Um, has the sort of process of sports sponsorship, the renegotiation of contracts post-COVID changed at all? Yeah, it changed. It changed a little bit. It, the timing is very different. And the way you look at it, like one year ago, property, for example, across the globe was falling. Now it's like gone. So everything is back and back in a pace that it's recovery over the two years, probably uh, economy lost. And that's why you see inflation and all this stuff. Sports is no different. So in the early days, when we, renego we renegotiated most of our deals, uh, almost like over the last 18 months, yes, we managed to get the good deals back into track and without really a lot of uh, increase. And we still, till now, I guess, uh, it's a good deal for us and for the sports clubs. And uh, one thing what you need to notice, mm. you know, sports is not at the top of any sponsors. At the end of the day, all these companies, they suffer in a way or another. And recovery, unfortunately, most of the companies, they don't take marketing as a part of the number one in the recovery priorities. While for Emirates, no. For Emirates, it's always marketing. In the, it's on the top and brand on the top of our of our uh, objective and strategy. And and even when the whole world was down and closed, the decision was taken on the highest level from the government and the ownership of Emirates, that Emirates has to continue service as, a, as it is, like the top yeah. quality product. The brand has to continue as it is. So we had all the support to our ambitions and our, our uh, thinking because we always knew yeah. life has to continue. You cannot stop and start counting your money. No, you stop and 
you 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 see how you you move on. Long may that continue. Listen, I'm going to let you get back to the show and make sure you've got enough uh, food and uh, drinks for this afternoon as I'm well. I'm on a diet. <laughs> Can't thank you enough for your time this morning. Boutros, thank good you. to see you. I'm back to you here in the studio. More from us on the course a little later on. Tom, good stuff, mate. Say hi to Boutros uh, from Brandy and I. Everyone Fa- says hi. Okay, yeah. Hi. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's a big loving. <laughs> Fascinating interview with Boutros there. It's a a b- well-catered interview with Boutros there. <laughs> I was thinking that's, that's going to go down as one of the the great quotes of the business break meerkat moment where we just sit up and go oh and when he talked about thank was it thanks god we had enough food and drinks to cater for everyone and it reminded me of other kind of great quotes that we get occasionally and we love it where people are candid on the business breakfast the late great malcolm taylor our former colleague were interviewing one of his last interviews was colin mclaughlin of dubai duty free talking about annual results of dubai duty free and Malcolm asked him, so what do you get when you, what do you buy when you're walking through duty free? And I can't do the accent, but Colm said, 200 Benson and Hedges. <laughs> it's just the candid honesty that everybody in the world, bar none, loves candid honesty. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.